Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 591 of the Survival Podcast. Today is a Thursday, July, January, July, January 20th, 2011. At least it is for you. For me, it's actually Monday of the same week, and... Uh, pre-recording this because I am now at the bug out location laying flooring and getting and smashing out a kitchen island and getting things ready for the big move in February probably February March time frame that we'll actually be doing the final parts of the move putting the house on the market um, so with that I wanted to make sure that there was a show for you guys I do go away on occasion I always try to leave something behind today's show is an example of that I've had a lot of questions lately Jack, all the stuff you talk about seems like it's designed for the person with 20 acres or at least 10 acres or some kind of acres. It's not really designed for the homesteader uh, in the suburban environment. And the reality is most of what I've talked about doing for the past three years has been suburban-based. Uh, I've talked about other techniques that people use from education that I've received. But when I talk about the things I've actually done, folks, I have a third of an acre, a third. And uh, I have a giant pool and a giant deck, so that takes up a lot of the land that would be maybe available to another place. And then half my yard is completely, totally shaded. So this is one little, ship, one little strip of nice, sunny land that I use to do most of the stuff that I do and talk about. So um, I really have been talking about suburban stuff. But a lot of times I don't angle it that way. So today what I'm going to talk about, because I understand that Probably 80% or more of the people that listen to this show live in a typical subdivision of some sort. Some live kind of in, in the country, so to speak, uh, but still have kind of that neighborhood feel and the yards and the fences and things like that, everything that goes with it. And a lot of people live in suburbs and things like that as well. Many of us would like to get out. I'm getting out. I mean, that's why I'm not here right now. That's why I'm somewhere else doing the show from the past. But um, a lot of us would like to get out. and uh, But not everybody can get out. There's things that keep us here. So today I'm going to focus on if you're going to be in the in the suburbs for you know five ten years or more and you really want a homestead there what can you do how do you do how how do you make your thought process maximize what you have available to you how do you see your disadvantages as advantages so it should be a fun show today and should apply to most of the audience and then those of you who are blessed to be out in the sticks everything that a person in the suburbs can do you can do too now you have to think a little bit differently sometimes scale some things back. But this should apply to everyone, so it should be a great show. Before we get into today's topic, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is MERS-Radio.com. Yes, MERS and a dash and then the word radio and a dot and a com. Who, what is MERS Radio? MERS Radio is an unlicensed frequency, meaning anybody can use it. Uh, uh, frequency uh, Featuring five channels and five sub-channels each. And, you know, that sounds all fancy, but here's what it is. It's radios, like walkie-talkies. That's the best way to think of it. Like, sort of like walkie-talkies, but you're on a, a, a range of frequencies that far less people use. The range is about one to two miles in most instances. There's some things you can do to extend that, but they are limited. So this is more for use on your property. What you also can do, though, is add things to it like 
motion detectors. So I have my system set up with some handhelds, a base station that's always on and plugged in, and motion detectors. And that means if somebody's sneaking around my front porch at night or, some, or my dog's trying to escape the backyard gate, either way, I know something's going on out there and I know to check into it. It's a really cool way to integrate security and communications together, and it works excellent. I really recommend you check out MERS Radios. Uh, you can use their banner on our website to check out and learn more about them. Next up today is Berkey with the Berkey Guy, available from Directive21.com. Again, Directive21.com, the number two and the number one.com. I love the Berkey guy because he sells Berkey water filtration systems and some other great stuff for your prepping needs. The thing about dealing with the Berkey guy is he is one of the top resellers for Berkey in the country. That means you're going to get some of the best pricing from him you could possibly get anywhere. And beyond that, more important to me than saving a dollar or two on, it, on a major purchase anyway, is you're going to get some of the most outstanding customer service and support you've ever seen. Whatever you need, Jeff over there is going to take care of you and he's going to do it right. As far as the technology, I say this, I said this before, I'll say it again. Until someone proves to me otherwise, the most economical long-term water uh, treatment solution you can get your hands on and get maximum bang for the buck and the most affordability when you measure the cost of the system over time is the Berkey system. Nothing else comes close to what Berkey provides from a cost-benefit analysis and from a performance standpoint as well. If it's in there and you want it out, Berkey's going to get it out for you. Uh, if you want to get fluoride out of your water, which I recommend, um, then I really recommend you get the additional fluoride filters to go with your system. Definitely worth the investment, but check out uh, Berkey, the Berkey guy at Directive21.com. Do that today if you haven't done so. Uh, next up, remember to connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. And since I'm at the Bug Out location all week, uh, I'm going to throw out a Thursday special for anybody that wants to join the Bug Out, or join the Member Support Brigade today. Discount code is BOL, is in Bug Out Location. Use BOL, again, BOL for Bug Out Location. Get your first year of the Member Support Brigade for $35. Uh, that's about as good a price as I ever do. Again, BOL, first year of Member Support Brigade for $35. I am not going to put this on the show notes or anywhere else. It's for listeners only. So since some people listen the day after or what have you, I will run this special through midnight on Monday. That would be Monday the 24th. Okay, so you have Monday the 24th from now, BOL, 15 bucks off your first year MSB. And with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Again, I have so many people out there that email me all the time and say things like, that I can like, I can basically understand you must be in suburbia. Because if you had 20 acres, you just would plant it somewhere else. I get, you know, I have this really shady spot. I have this spot where there's nothing but shade. So that's an indicator for me. And that's one of the big limitations of, uh, you know, gardening in the country, so to speak, or homesteading in the country. We can turn those two advantages, though, with certain things. But what we really have to do is we have to understand something that I think a lot of people don't understand. In many ways, there are tremendous advantages to homesteading in a suburban environment. Um, one is the smaller piece of land forces you to be more efficient. And it is a lot more possible for you to intensely manage everything you're doing because you're forced onto that smaller footprint. But if we're really going to get the most out of this, the first thing that we have to do is we have to define what the hell a homestead is. See, the problem with homesteading and that, the concept of homesteading and doing it in suburban or urban environments is that most people, when they hear homestead, 
They think of, you know, the 1800s and people going across the plains and, you know, hitching up the, the covered wagon and stopping at some point between the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean and picking a place and, and, and you know, claiming the land and staking it out and making a go with 40 acres and a mule and building that, that first house from scratch and all that good stuff. And there's a huge tradition of homesteading in that model. And if we look back in time, we can learn a lot from the people that did those things. And I think it's wonderful that we can learn from them. And I think there's a lot of lessons that we can draw from that. But we have to understand that that's not today. So even today, what we think of is, well, the guy works really hard in corporate America, saves up a bunch of money, and buys, you know, maybe he doesn't have 40 acres anymore. Maybe he doesn't need 40 acres anymore. Maybe it's five acres or 10 acres in a dream. And that's homesteading. And it certainly is. And the people that do that, we can learn a lot from them. But that doesn't really answer the question is, what is the overall goal of a homestead? What is it really supposed... Now, not what do we emotionally, spiritually get from it, but what's it supposed to do? What makes my house a homestead and somebody else's house just a house? A homestead, if we go back to those, those pioneers, we understand that they left the East. And a lot of times they would have like this dilapidated old shack that they had pieced together and lived in. And maybe they couldn't even sell it for anything because it's just fallen down and, and ready to go to pieces. And they just basically hung on to it to save up as much as they could before they went west. And then those folks, you know what they would do? They would set fire to their house before they left. Now, did they do that to keep it away from other people? No, no. They got to care less if somebody else came and took it after they left. Maybe they even sold the land. But a lot of times people were like, I don't want the house. Just like today. You buy like you look at a, a piece of property and it's got this ramshackled old house on it that's not worth a damn, and the, the guy's going to just bulldoze it. Well, if you got rid of it for him, he'd be happy with that. He just wants the dirt. Well, the reason they burned them down is so they could get the nails. Nails were a hard thing to come by out on the plains or out in the mountains or anywhere you know away from what had already been settled, where there was a you know an established blacksmith to make make nails. I mean, understand you didn't you didn't have like a, a factory in China chugging them out and shipping them over here, right? So that's how let's say self reliant independent these people were that they would burn down their old home to take the nails with them. So when they went out there. And they started homesteading. They looked to that piece of land, that 40 acres. There was all these, you know, maybe there was, if they found a place with a lot of trees on it. Eventually most of those trees would have to go so that they could plant. But initially that tree, those trees would be cut down and the lumber used for heating and cooking and for building their new home with the bag of nails they brought with them. Sometimes on the plains they would use sod to make the first house and then have to come up with wood from somewhere else to eventually construct a more conventional home. But you get the point. They lived off the land. They went out with very little, as much supplies, just like we do as preppers. Try to take a year's worth of food with you. But that food's going to run out, and you're not just going to spin the wagon around and run back, you know, across the plains and, and get more. You had to, a year to get there, establish a beachhead, and make that land produce. And that's the key. A home is a place you live. A homestead provides for you. A home, in the modern sense, in America, is a consumer. It consumes the largest part of your income, the largest part of your energy, the largest part of your time. And when we look at the total cost, the cost to buy it, to pay taxes on it, to put power into it, to keep it warm, to keep it cool. And then once we're living there, to live there, we have to feed ourselves and we have to go out and spend money to bring food in. Where the old homesteader said, the land itself shall provide. 
So if we want to make our homes into homesteads, we have to convert them from producer, from consumer, into producer. And if we're going to do that, the first thing we're going to have to do is say, okay, I, let's be realistic. I do not have 40 acres in a mule. Uh, but I have modern technology I can work with. But even with that modern technology, I'm sitting on a tenth or, you know, a third or a half or whatever it is of an acre in suburbia. I have limitations. So I have to be honest with myself about the limitations of my landscape. And I have to take an assessment of it and say that certain portions of it are never going to be usable for certain things. If I have an area of my yard that because of my, my own home, I can't move the house, my neighbor's house, and maybe a giant tree, especially a tree maybe I don't want to cut, or one of my neighbor's yard that I don't have the authority to cut, and that part of that yard is fully shaded, well, I'm not going to grow much there. Now, there's other things I can do. We'll talk about them later. It might be a great place uh, to keep my rabbits in the summertime. Now, I might want to move my rabbits in the wintertime to a more sunlit area. I might want to build a mobile hutch system if I'm keeping rabbits. But think about it. That, 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 that misery of the shade that, that I can, you know, the ground's dirt over there. I can't even get anything to grow over there. Grass won't grow there. Well, it's also a much cooler environment for any type of small livestock that I'm doing. So I gotta accept the limitations. But I also have to embrace what are those limitations, what, what do those limitations actually empower? If I have a really steep slope, well, there's a lot of things that are hard to grow there, but there's some things I can do with that we'll talk about in a bit. But go ahead and evaluate the limitations. Go ahead, walk your property. You only own a tenth of an acre or a half an acre. Walk every inch of it with a notebook. And every time you see something negative, write it down. Make the list. Accept the fact that there's these limitations. Because those limitations and those problems, if you evaluate them carefully, will lead you to solutions as you analyze the whole process going forward. You also need to define your wants and your needs. I've seen people that go and they put these great edible landscapes in, and then they almost use nothing out of the production. Guy's got two beautiful, I know one guy, two beautiful fig trees. And he's done a great job. He's got them on a south-facing slope. He's got rocks all around the root system to pull that extra heat in there in the wintertime, because it does get kind of cold here in the winter. And he's got these beautiful figs coming off it. And uh, I talked to him not too long ago, uh, back when the, the fig harvest was heavy in the fall. He goes, hey, you want some figs? Sure, man, I'll take some figs. Said, and he, he's like, you can have as many as you want. Come get them. Man, your house is pretty far away to drive to get some figs. Man, I'll come over, but uh, what do you mean all I want? Well, he doesn't eat figs. He doesn't like them. And my thought was, it would have been a good idea for this guy to get a few fresh figs and eat them before he planted them. So you have to ask yourself, what do you like to eat? Please don't plant things you don't like. No matter how exotic or interesting it is, unless you know there's a market for it and you're going to sell it, Plant what you'll eat first. And if it is something that you think you'll like, do whatever it takes. Put an ad on Craigslist, for God's sake. Find somebody that grew one and try it before you, you grow it. Because there's nothing like growing a ton of food and getting a bumper crop of something you're not going to eat. You know, persimmons are another great example. All, I love persimmons. I don't have room for them in suburbia here. Does it make sense for me from a standpoint of production versus return? When we move to Arkansas, there's wild persimmons uh, growing around the area. I haven't found any on my property, but I've got parts of my property I haven't even fully investigated yet because of overgrowth. If I find any wild persimmons, you know I'm going to clear that area out and encourage them. But since wild ones grow there, I know I can grow good ones there. But I like persimmons. I really enjoy eating persimmons. So 
With that being the case, of course I'm going to grow persimmons. But you shouldn't grow them unless you like them. I know this sounds elementary, but again, I've seen it. I've seen people grow plenty of things they don't really like. The next thing you need to ask yourself, understand here, if, if you have even an acre, that's quite a bit of land. And if you're going to grow the common peppers and tomatoes that you can buy at the store and at the farmer's market every day on that much land, it's probably not really a bad, a bad thing because it's fresh, it's from your backyard, etc. But if you only have, let's say, the area to put in like four or five raised beds, You need to really ask yourself, what is cheap and easy to buy in my area? That I can get organic and locally grown and, and, and things like that, very affordable, or even if I'm willing to buy the normal stuff from the grocery store, things like peppers and tomatoes a lot of times, they don't make a lot of sense to grow. Now, I'm not putting it down if you grow it, and they're great, they're easy, so they're great first or second year crops to kind of cultivate your knowledge and your ability and start out with something simple, But when you think about the fact that you can go to the farmer's market and buy a great big basket of potatoes for five bucks, maybe plain Jane tomatoes aren't what you should be growing. Maybe if you're going to grow tomatoes, you should be growing you know, some type of heirloom that's hard to come by, like a black crim would be an example, amazing tomato, you know, or, or something like that. Uh, you know, corn is another example. People all, everybody wants to grow corn. And my, my statement is, if you have a small growing area, it takes so much space and so much nutrient, it doesn't make sense. And if you are going to grow it, grow something that's very stable and very hard to come by. You know, like an Indian blue or a, a, a red corn or, or something like that. Something that's more of a flower corn that, that, that has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years as a cultivated heirloom that can get by without lots of fertilizers and things like that. And you still have to minimize that. But why are you going to, like... Go through all of the agony to grow, and I did it myself. Just and I knew better. I did it just to see was it you know how how unworth it was. It was what I did this year. I grew a couple beds full of corn this year, and they grew. And I had corn worms I had to deal with, and I had to to to, to spray with uh, you know an organic control, but a control to get any kind of of a harvest out of them at all. I had to heavily fertilize with blood and bone, uh, and I got a very low yield to, to surface area. And I did that, and I shared my failures with it with you to demonstrate the futility in it. And there was really what it was. It was planned failure to demonstrate it on YouTube. And I think I did a pretty good job of demonstrating how poorly you can get results from corn. And even if you got good results from the corn, is it worth it for something that you can go buy five ears of organic white sweet corn at the farmer's market for $1.25? When, you know, let's say you would probably need, in your small uh, growing situation, you're going to get an average of about one and a half cobs per plant, plants to survive. So you're going to use up three three square feet, maybe, of your garden in a, in a space-conscious situation to grow something that's that cheap. So it is important that we start evaluating things. I'm going to grow peppers. Nothing wrong with that, but maybe we should be growing, you know, some type of frying peppers or something you can't just go to the store and buy. Unless there's something that grows in your area like mad and you get huge yields from it. A perfect example. In the summertime, I can get jalapenos anywhere around here. And they're dirt cheap. But I can put in five plants and grow more than I can eat. So now the return makes sense. Because the plant does so well here. Now if I was living further north, I might want to rely on purchasing my jalapenos from somebody that specializes in them, and I might want to grow peppers that deal better with the cool weather climate, but things that are like large, long, exotic frying peppers. So what I'm saying is to grow the things that cost you more or harder to get.
when it comes to the growing stuff. So you want to look at everything that's cheap and easy to buy and say, that's probably not what I need to grow. And then I want to turn back around and I want to say, you know, well, what's the converse of that? What is expensive to purchase? What do I use a lot of that's actually, uh, that actually costs me quite a bit? What, what do I spend the most money on? And then that helps to start giving me a list of things to grow. So, so that those two kind of work together. And then, you know, the last one kind of in that finding your wants and needs for what you're going to grow is ask yourself what's difficult to acquire. What, what do I have a hard time even getting my hands on regardless of what I'm willing to pay for? What have I found that's maybe just, just not going to be available in stores? Uh, there, there's, there's so many things that would fit. Uh, that arrangement, especially when we get into perennials, we start looking at different kinds of grapes or kiwi fruits uh, that grow on vines, or we look at um, maybe some things like uh, cornelian cherry would be a great example of uh, of that type of a thing. Uh, edible bamboos. I mean, there's I've done so many shows on these these things that you know they're becoming more mainstream for people to plant now, but you just don't find them out in in society. Aronia, elderberry, uh, gumi, uh, wolfberry. All of these things make a lot more sense to grow than a head of lettuce that we can get from the grocery store in the summertime. We grow the lettuce, but we'll grow it in the winter when it's easy to grow. We'll grow it in late fall, early spring. Why fight? The hot weather of summer trying to force lettuce that just doesn't do well. Maybe you find one or two varieties of greens for the summer, but then those are also things you don't really find in the store. New Zealand spinach, Malabar spinach, things like that. So try to grow things that are a little bit exotic. Look for the easy-to-grow exotics that will do well in your area. Not because you do it just to be different, but because it adds variety to your diet and it provides you with something you can't purchase or find. All right? The next thing you really need to do, I talked about walking your, your land and, and defining its, its limitations. One thing you really need to do is kind of define it by what it has to offer. And, and now let's do converse and say the, the shade is not the limitation, it is an, an aspect. So the shade isn't a problem, I just need to know what can I use that area for given that it has shade. And we also have to ask ourselves, does the shady place in summer... Is it still shady in winter? And many times the answer is no. Maybe maybe it's because it's shaded by a deciduous tree. And in winter, when the leaves fall off, the, the branch system's still up there, but a lot of sunlight comes through. So sometimes the area that's really shaded in the summer is actually a great place for a greenhouse. It gets filtered sunlight in there. It's a great place to start your seeds. You can put some white reflection up somewhere and help bounce the light around, and it's a good, good incubator to get seeds going in the summer and then maybe even move them out to the garden as soon as they sprout because it's nice and warm and humid and high CO2 in there. But then in the, in, the, in the winter, when all of those leaves fall off that tree and the angle of the sun changes, then the, the, the greenhouse is constantly hit by sun and you get lots of solar gain. So you got to define your areas, and your big ones that you're going to deal with in uh, in suburbia are areas with lots of, of shade, areas with lots of sun, areas that either have are heavily exposed to wind or highly sheltered from wind. And then overall, what can the land be used for? If you start to evaluate your lot based on that kind of a logic, then you start to plug solutions in instead of just seeing the problems. The next thing you want to do is you want to make sure when it comes to, you, you know, homesteading is more than just growing stuff, but that's the one we're talking about a lot today, 
And, and there's a reason for it, because that's how we feed ourselves. So if we're going to feed ourselves, one of the first things that we need to look for in, in the crops that we're going to grow are heavy producers. What produces very, very heavily produces to the point of surplus. That once I have the surplus, I can easily store long term. See, peppers, again, they're a great one. Especially things that maybe you can't buy locally or just grow so well uh, that they make sense for you to grow. Because all you need with peppers is a dehydrator. Either an electric one or a solar one or what have you. And you can put away tons and tons and tons of peppers. And you can eat them all through the part of the year when you can't grow anymore. So heavy producers. Uh, this is why I like fruit trees. Apples, peaches, uh, pecans, uh, filberts, uh, pears, you name it. Any plant like that, once you get it past that first three or four years, you get it really established and get it crowning out, uh, they produce in a, an abundance that's hard to even comprehend. You can do a lot of work with your smaller trees, your, uh, your dwarf and semi-dwarf trees. Let them grow up to about eight feet and then crown them out at eight feet. And don't let them get much higher than that. And you'll get very thick, very robust, hardy fruit trees that fit well into backyards, even relatively small backyards. Got to think about where we're planting them, though. There's no shade there now, but the tree itself will create shade. So we have to look at our angles and our different times of the year and plan that out. The next thing, again, is not readily available commercially. I know I've said it already, but I'm going to say it again here because it's so important that we start to grow things that we can't just go to the store and get. That way, when we do have to rely on the store, we're not buying what we're already producing, and we're creating greater diversity and variety in our diets. Because homesteading is not just about providing for you, it's about living a healthier, more satisfying lifestyle. And the more we do of this, the less we blow money on things we don't really need, the, the less we try to replace that hole in ourselves with consumer credit cards, and the less damage we do to ourselves, and the more self-sufficient we become. And by sticking to things that are unique that we're growing, at least not, I mean, don't all of a sudden go, well, I'm not going to grow any tomatoes or peppers. That's not what I'm saying. So you try to bring diversity in. Um, the next one is you really want to focus, focus in suburbia more even than out on the farm, and I think people have a tendency to do the exact opposite, is perennials over annuals. Anything that you can plant, that you can just maintain and will keep coming back over and over again, these generally take more time. You don't usually get a harvest your first year. Sometimes you get nothing your second year. Usually you get a little one your third, and you get bumper crops after that with most, most perennials. But I think the problem is that when most people think of, well, perennial, they think of trees, and they say, well, that's the one thing I don't have a lot of space for is trees in, in, in suburbia. But your best and quickest producing perennials are your bushes and your vines. So there's a lot of things that we can look at uh, that, that really kind of start to drive this home. Some things that would fill this niche. Uh, Nanking bush cherry, available from Rain Tree Nursery. These are great. I mean, they're basically kind of like somewhere between a cherry and a plum, but they're about the size of a cherry, and they taste more like a cherry than a plum. But they don't grow very big. Um, a lot of your edible dogwoods, your cornelian cherries and, and things like that, they're very small, compact trees. And then we scale down into true shrubs. Blackberry and raspberry are great examples of things like that. Mulberry can be a giant tree or a relatively small shrub, depending on how you train it and how you cause it to grow. Um, some other examples that you might consider for this would be figs. Again, figs can be pruned into a relatively small tree. If you live in northern climates, a lot of times they'll die back to the root system, but still produce two crops for you every year once that root system is established. Things like grapes... You know, not all grapes have to be on a beautiful trellis system uh, that's designed for optimum production like a vineyard. 
Uh, you can grow if you have a big open fence row. It's just this boring fence there. You can grow grapes along your fence. You can grow kiwis along your fence. And now you're making use of those vertical spaces. Uh, other things you can grow, filberts are, are a great compact shrub bush tree, depending on how you, you prune them and get them to grow. Elderberry, currant, gooseberry. If you start to really look at the bushes and shrubs, you start to realize there's a tremendous variety of things available that are great to eat, high in nutrition, easy to grow, very dependable. Uh, blueberries is something maybe more suited to a container or a small plot that you specifically uh, turn the soil more acidic to, to compensate for them. If we start to grow a backyard full of this type of stuff, instead of full of oleanders and rhododendrons and azaleas, All of a sudden, we have just as much beauty and a hell of a lot of production. And it's once established, especially once you get into that second year, once those roots are deep, the mulch, is, the mulch system and the breakdown of soil is going on. You've got some fertilization going on from composting and natural production and things like that. All of a sudden, this stuff becomes very passive and very easy to maintain, especially for those of us that work really hard. They put in 50, 60, 70 hours of work a week, and we come home, we don't have that much time for our gardening efforts. Well, if it's going outside, just kind of checking on things, maybe pruning a branch or a limb here, it becomes therapy instead of a chore. So really focus on the perennials. I think everybody should have a nice little annual garden patch. I'm not saying to the exclusion of them, but I'm saying... Make that a primary focus of what you're trying to do. And there's a lot you can do with that. And a lot of things that can really maximize the backyard. Strawberries in a pot or a tower of any type of tower that you build. Uh, you can grow tons and tons of strawberries in a very small relative area. And if you do it with container growing and the sun's here now, you can put them here. And if the shade comes, you can move them at different times of the year. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount that we can do with perennials and be very, very space conscious, uh, including things that are more of the concept of vegetables. If we look at things like asparagus, you establish a nice asparagus patch, and for you know three quarters of the year, you've got a great big, beautiful, flowery-looking fern. And it doesn't have flowers, what I mean by flowery is really fine, flowery leaves. But every spring, as the shoots come up, you're snapping shoots off. First time you harvest it, you're maybe getting two weeks, then four and then six, and then eight full weeks of harvest. It's a lot of asparagus that you can put up. Uh, you know, with canning or, or, or with freezing, it's probably a better way to do asparagus if you have the option. But that's something that will come back year after year after year. And it only takes this little plot on the ground, you know, off in a sunny corner somewhere where you, you know, enhance the soil for it and you take care of it. And you can put in, you know, drip irrigation or a mist irrigation system of some sort. And, you know, you can automate that even if you want to. And these are things that are more, you know, you could grow a huge patch of asparagus, massive one, on your five acres in a dream in the country, but intensely managing a patch will do so much for the one family. I mean, how much asparagus is a single family going to eat? So think about those perennials and the biannuals like parsley, your biannual and perennial herbs. Find places where the herbs are going to do well and just cultivate the hell out of them there. And every year when they start producing, like I showed you on the video last year, harvesting basil seeds. There's just seed heads everywhere. Just take big bunches of them, throw them in a bag and save them for next year, and then take all the rest and throw them on the ground. And watch how much comes up on its own. And if it doesn't come up on its own, you've got some seed that you've overwintered inside. Sow that seed. Once you get parsley, basil, oregano, sage, thyme, rosemary, thick, they're basically production systems that come back over and over again. And if you look at what we pay for a pound of basil, 
versus a pound of corn or tomato. Basil costs a hell of a lot more, and we can use it in everything that we cook with. And if we're bringing that, 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 you know, five primary herbs, parsley, thyme, oregano, basil, and sage, out of our garden, and we're drying some for the time of the year when some of those plants, not all of them, some of those plants die back, and we're using that in our cooking all the time, we're actually practicing preventive medicine. You've learned that recently from the herbal actions episodes that we've done. So that is a huge part of suburban homesteading is herb growing and herb gardens. And they look pretty. And there's all different, you know, there's different types of basil. You don't have to just grow plain green basil. There's purples and red shades of basil. There's thymes with white mottled into the leaves that look beautiful as trailing plants. You can start to construct these things into your landscaping and replace things you can't eat with things that you can. And that, again, maximizes space. A lot of people go, I don't have much space. And you look out in their front yard, and they have all these bushes going across the front of their house. And you say, why don't you grow something there? And it's almost like it never even occurred to them how much can be done with that area. And they don't even realize what a great location is. Maybe it gets hit with sun, especially in the winter if it's facing south. Well, that wall heats up all day long, and it radiates heat in the evening. That extends our season. I've got a roof right overhead. It's a great rain catch system. So with a little bit of swelling, which we'll talk about in a bit, I can take the runoff from the roof straight down into that garden, catch it and reserve it, hold it back, and I can make a great place to grow edibles that look really nice and look more like an ornamental garden in the front of my house. And now I'm maximizing, because I'm not just growing a little plot in the back corner of my yard. I'm using all the available space, which is extremely important the less space that I have. I also want you to make sure that you're focusing on things that are good for long-term storage. Peppers were another thing I, I mentioned. But the reality is, if you'll teach yourself some storing methodologies, they all are. Apples, nah, they don't store real well outside of a root cellar. And even there, they have some limitations how long you can store an apple. But if you take apples and you get one of those little machines that peels it, and slices it spirally at the same time, those things are awesome, right? Throw the apple in there, you turn it, and next thing you know, it's, it's all sliced up. You throw the core into the, uh, the uh, compost bin. You take those slices and you lay them in a dehydrator. Dehydrated apples. You can make anything from a snack with that to apple pie. Take dehydrated apples. Rehydrate them in a little bit of water, hopefully filtered through your Berkey and not full of fluoride. Mix those into some pancake batter Make apple and a little bit of cinnamon. Make pancakes that way. Tell me you'll ever want to eat a plain old pancake again after you eat that. Well, that can come from the tree in your backyard. And that tree can be small and compact. You can even espalar that tree. Or espalier. Or espalar. Or however the hell the French say it. And that's where you basically grow, you can grow a, a, an apple tree flat against a fence or flat against a wall. I'll give some links in the show notes where you can look up that technique. So, focus on things that can store long term and understand that most things can if you'll learn how to store them. So if you're going to grow stuff, research the storing methodologies behind them and make sure they fit well with your lifestyle. It's one thing to say I can grow tons of grape, grapes and turn them into wine. What if you don't drink wine? That's probably not a good idea. And yet people that don't really eat grapes or only eat fresh grapes will grow a ton of grapes. If only you only eat fresh grapes, you're very better off with instead of ten vines of one variety – Right? Maybe scale that down to three vines or three, maybe six and two pairs of three different varieties that come in and stagger your crop. So you have an early, a mid-season, and a late. And that extends how long uh, you have fresh grapes available to you instead of creating this massive surplus that you don't really like the idea as storing as grapes or wine or raisins. 
So when you're looking at heavy producers, make sure you're considering the storage aspect. Another thing you might want to do to really maximize what you can do for yourself with the resources you have are look for things that would maybe require a lot of special care that you can either automate but don't automate well on large scale or that you don't really need to automate but because it's such a small scale, it's not that labor-intensive for you. It can be fun. Uh, an example would be you could build a really beautiful greenhouse. And this would be more of a cash crop, by the way. And I'm going to tell you the idea here is held more by Bill Mollison than me. I got this from one of his lectures. But we think of, if you think of a very expensive spice or seasoning, depending on how you want to call it, it would be vanilla. And vanilla is actually really expensive. Now, when we look at vanilla extract, it doesn't seem very expensive. But we get a lot of extract from a little bit of vanilla, and most of it's imitation anymore anyway. But if you go to the store and you actually buy whole vanilla beans, you'll get two or three little pods in a jar, and you'll spend quite a bit of money on that. And vanilla actually comes from an orchid. It's an orchid, so it needs to never go below about 40 degrees. So in most of North America, that just doesn't play out very well. You're going to get some frost and freeze. Your orchid's going to die, and it takes two to three years to start getting production. And then additionally... Uh, in this environment, since the, the insects that pollinate it are not available uh, from its native area, it needs to be manually pollinated by hand. But this is very easy and very quick to do with each orchid. So if we were to build a great big beautiful greenhouse attached to a home, if we had an ideal situation with a south-facing wall for this, and we were to plant a tremendous number of and orchids that run like a vine, and we had this whole greenhouse just full of these beautiful vanilla orchids, Um, we could produce a heavy cash crop and we could have, when it comes to selling organic and at the farmer's markets and locally and things like this, we could have something that we have no competition for. Go to the average farmer's market in the temperate climate of North America and look for organic, locally grown vanilla bean. Almost impossible to find. And that is a marketable crop with a cash return. That's just one example of what I'm talking about. There's other things that require a lot of doting on, a lot of little extra steps, and extra little things that people have to do. Well, again, if we'll take the steps to, to, to bring them down to a small scale, um, shiitake or mitake or um, rishi mushroom would be another example. You know, all that shaded area. We can take all that shaded area and we can go out and we can find anywhere that they've cut down trees for woodlots or things like that. And we can find all the pieces of like hardwood, especially oak log, we can get our hands on for free. We can bring them home. We can drill holes in them. We can inoculate them with mushroom spawn. And to get into our first production out of something like that takes a year or two. But once they start going, we get some of those logs that will produce for five to ten years for us. Before they kind of crap out, and then they're, they're you know, we are either going to compost them or shred them or do something like that because they're pretty much tapped out and done. But we could have a little stack of logs, and some of these mushrooms, you know, that kind of works like this: you inoculate the logs, and then at certain times, you basically soak the log in water, and then that stimulates it to fruit. And we can actually purposely stagger our harvest, and we can do that small scale for our personal use, or we can turn it into a cash crop. Realize something about the homesteader of, of your right. The old and home, old day homesteader. He didn't just grow the food he had to eat and didn't just put food on his own table. He grew cash crops and he sold them. We can do that in the city too. 
We just have to grow specialized things that require less space and more intensive management so that we can compete. Because if you try to compete with the mass-scale agriculture uh, by growing corn in suburbia, it's just not going to happen. You can't do it. You can't do it profitably. But things like mushroom and vanilla are just two examples of things that can that we can do that with. Mushrooms are really unique because they dehydrate so beautifully. When you rehydrate a mushroom, it's almost no different uh, than using it fresh, especially if you're going to cook with it in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I have uh, dehydrated shiitakes. I guarantee if I, if I rehydrate them and I made you two omelets with shiitake mushrooms and cheese, you'd never tell me the fresh from the rehydrated. So the mushrooms, if we produce more than we can sell, we can dehydrate them. We can sell them dehydrated or we can use them. And you've got to start thinking about how to make systems support each other. The next thing is the home center of your definitely had the mule. And that was kind of a, a, a catch-all for uh, a, a lot of stock. The mule might be the first one because the mule was so important. He would help, you know, there was no tractor. So you had to clear clear woodlots and you cut down a tree. Man can't pull it, but the mule could help you pull the tree. It could pull the plow and help you get things planted. But the homesteader would start to build up an entire collection of livestock. You know, chickens for meat, for eggs, and for manure. And the chickens did a lot of the work. Ducks and anything else. Goats, pigs, what have you. Well, okay, you got a tenth of an acre in suburbia. Even a half of an acre. You're probably not going to have four or five pigs rolling around in a sty. A couple, you know, dairy cows walking around your backyard. And two or three goats. It just doesn't make sense. And even a lot of folks that move out on a 10 acres that could do that, you might not want it. You know, especially cattle. Cattle are very hard on land. Really hard on land. You need a lot of land to run even a small amount of cattle. Uh, unless you can do a lot of supplemental feed. And then they're still just a big animal and they can be hard on land. Goats can be good for land and they can be hard on land. But there are a couple things that really makes sense for suburbia. The first one is the chicken, especially no roosters with the chicken. And just a little hen house with a half a dozen hens or a dozen hens or four hens. They can produce more eggs than you could use for the household, and if you have a few more than you need, they can produce enough eggs that you can barter in exchange and maybe sell them locally. So if we can start to reach out into barter now, if my neighbor has a beautiful pecan tree, and he's got this huge pecan tree, And he has the surplus of pecans. If I give him a few eggs, I guarantee you he's going to be, when the, when the harvest comes in, happy to give me some pecans. Now I don't have to grow a pecan. I don't have to wait the 10 years for that tree to really produce. My neighbor's done it for me. I provide the eggs. So they can work directly for me, and they can act as a barter tool, or I can use them to sell. So I can use them as a cash crop. The other thing with chickens is because I, I'm going to have all this excess waste from uh, crop, the excess crops, the part I don't really want to eat, parts that are left over, I can put them through my chickens before they go to compost, which is increases their nutrient load and increases the breakdown speed of composting. So the chickens become a way to fertilize my other crops. So the chicken brings a lot to the table. I won't go too deep into it because, let's face it, we can do, easily do a whole show on chickens. But chickens are something you definitely want to consider anyway. I would also say ducks is another form of poultry. And most people think of a duck and go, I need a big pond and everything. But khaki campbells uh, are relatively happy with a little kiddie pool to get in once in a while and pretty much acting as a, as a land duck. They're not big on, they're not real flighty. They're not real likely to take off on you. And if you're concerned with that, uh, clipping their wings is pretty easy to do and that'll keep them inside, you know, a six foot privacy fence fairly well. 
They're a lot easier on your land than chickens. They're not as big into the scratching and things like that. They love to eat slugs and stuff like that. Uh, and their, their eggs are probably a better quality egg than a chicken. And personally, between, between us, you know, personally, the personality of a duck, you know, a duck that's raised by hand or a chicken that's raised by hand, I like ducks better. They're a less messy animal to me. Uh, they just seem to have a, a better personality. I, nothing against chickens. I just like ducks. If you're going to do some eating, if occasionally you're going to bring in a, a male and you're going to let them grow and you're going to eat, I would much rather grow duck to consume and, and, and you know, maybe kill off a certain number of my, my ducklings every year as a, as a meat crop than I would chickens. A couple reasons why. Um, actually, one big reason why. I like ducks better than chicken. But the bigger reason, back to cash, go look at the cost of even an organic, organic free-range mid-sized chicken, you know, a nice roaster. Go look at the cost of a duck, an organic duck. Look at the cost of even commercially, you know, regular farm-raised ducks and chickens. Look at the cost difference. It's massive. Duck will sell for two to three times the amount, and they're a lot harder to find. They really are. So I'm, I'm again now I'm, I'm producing something. If I'm going to produce it for meat, that is harder to come by and costs more money, and yet requires about the same amount of input. It doesn't cost any more to feed ducks than it does to feed chickens. In a perfect world, you'd have both. But in making a decision in, in suburbia, the ducks might be a better way to go. And you know they're quiet, and it's easier to bring a drake in. And do some meat production. Now, either one in suburbia, you're going to have to do a lot of supplemental feed. That's one thing you're still going to be dependent on. You're going to have to go to the feed store. But they still have a good output versus input ratio. Especially if you're getting a constant supply of eggs and, and stuff like that. And you should still try to grow things for them and let them forage as much as you possibly can. If you have chickens and raised beds, build a cage the size of your standard raised bed. And every year when you're done with your crop, let your chickens in that cage for two to three hours a day for a week. And then put them back in their regular run or the place you normally retain them at. They'll manure it. They'll pick out every bit of weed seed. They'll pick out every pest. Every little thing that's, that's, that's hatched and crawled down in that soil, they'll eradicate it. And then you go ahead and plant it with a cover crop or what have you. Some things you can do with your chickens, right? You can start planting cover crops for the winter that actually produce feed for the chickens. So now maybe you're planting millet or buckwheat or things like that. You can feed it to your chickens. Uh, you know, winter peas and things like that your chickens will eat a lot of. You know, a lot of that stuff can be given to your ducks as well. Uh, again, both require inputs, though. Probably the best meat option for suburbia is rabbits. I know some people, like, it's a cute little furry bunny, and, you know, killing it is, is it's kind of tough. I am not big on killing creatures that are helpless. I'm a hunter. I'll go out in the woods, and I'll shoot Bambi right between the eyes, and I'll bring him home, and I'll fry up his back straps, and I will never shed a tear or feel an ounce of remorse for it. I will have a tremendous amount of respect and appreciation that the animal has given its life so that I can prolong mine. But, but I don't feel bad about it. Looking at a little helpless animal that trusts me and killing it, it's tough even for me to do. But, you know, I like the way that Marjorie from Backyard Food Production puts it. That meat is so much cleaner and healthier and better for us than anything we'll ever buy in the store. And the animal itself, if you're going to eat meat, an animal died. The animal that you raised that way has had so much more of a fulfilling 
and happy life than that commercially prepared animal. So if I'm eating rabbit tonight from my backyard, yeah, I had to break his neck and skin him. And yeah, he trusted me, and I kind of violated his trust in the end. I mean, I accept that. But that's his purpose. That's what he exists to be food for a higher life form. He exists to convert vegetable matter to manure and protein. And after a time, he's done that long enough, and he goes into the trophic level, and I'm at the top, and I'm sorry, that's where humans are. You know, with the rare exception of some things like lions, not much eats us, and we pretty much eat everything. That's how we're designed. So rabbits are a great, they're quiet, they reproduce well, you'll probably screw it up at first and kill a few of them, not the way that, you know, not for food, just like you'll mess some things up, but once you learn, a relatively small setup with, you know, maybe one buck and three or four does uh, can produce a rabbit, you know, maybe every other week, and that's... That's a big deal. I, I don't think you'll understand, maybe, if you were producing, uh, let's say, 25 rabbits a year, one every, two a month, right? 24, 25 rabbits a year. Um, that's 25 meals you don't have to provide a main course for. And then you got to look at how much, you know, even if you're not going to grow rabbits for, for meat, having a couple of them out in a little pen with a place for the manure to fall through and, and giving them all your surplus stuff that you can't eat from the garden, they're probably worth having for the manure alone. So I really recommend, if you're going to do anything with, with livestock in suburbia, rabbits may be the best place to start, uh, especially if you're going to be willing to use them for meat. You also have to look at things like, how can I utilize wildlife to do things that I would normally rely on livestock to do for me on a farm? What I mean by this is, in a big farm, I would just run my chickens through some of my beds after uh, harvest. Well, maybe I don't have chickens, or it's not as practical, even if I have a few, to do that here. So the thing that is, well, what can I do to encourage uh, native birds to come to that to that garden? So many native birds that are insectivores that like to eat the, the very bird we want in our garden, uh, they're not going to come down there unless there's a place to perch. So if I provide perches around my garden, when the, when, the, when the garden's pulled down and bare dirt's available for a couple weeks, my first harvest, before I go ahead and, and, and mulch heavily or, or cover crop, and I have some perches there, birds like catbirds and birds like wrens and, and birds like mockingbirds are going to be a lot more likely to come over, check things out, and then come down there and do some of my insect consumption for me. And this is true all year long, not just when the, the soil's uh, been, you know, open and had been harvested recently, but that would be a time I'd want to bring chickens in. I could bring these perchers in all year round if I provide some perching areas right near or in the beds themselves. They're simply not going to come unless there's just their habitat, their, their habit. They come in, they perch, they check for danger, they go to the ground, they, they, they take whatever they need, they come back up to their perch, they check around, and they haul ass. And if you, if you give them nothing but an open field and no place to perch, they don't go there because they don't feel safe. They go there and they, because they know. They're smart little bird, critters birds. There might be a cat around or a dog who wants to eat me. Well, if I come down on the perch... I'm and I can scan the area. And I've got this great vision as a bird. I can see any motion. If that cat starts to move into the area, I know it's not safe. And I also know I have an area I can immediately retreat to, and reevaluate the situation. So, you know, hunting here for me makes sense. Remember that bird's afraid, and he needs something to protect him. And that perch for the percher, which most of your insectivores are, is really important. I mean, another thing I can do is I can put feeders in areas. Uh, that bring in lots of birds. And what, what do birds always do when they're eating? They crap. 
And you, if you bring in, like I bring huge flocks of doves into this one area, and you wouldn't believe the way that the grass grows there in the spring. Why? It's covered in dove manure. Now, I don't have to actually take care of those animals. I just have to provide something to bring them in. So that's another way to look at it. Also, I would think you should look at aquaculture and aquaponics. Uh, either, either, either or, right? So aquaculture is just growing fish. Aquaponics is growing fish and plants. And then, of course, there's hydroponics as well, which is just growing plants. And any of those are huge advantages in a suburban area because they have huge, huge yields per square foot. And, of course, space is at a premium. Won't go deep into those. Just wanted to bring them up today briefly. The next thing is, if, if you're going to have a limited area and limited production due to it, then it becomes more important that you grow through longer periods of time. If you have a really big area and you can grow a couple acres of vegetables and you stockpile a bunch of them up in September, well, you pretty much pick up the squirrel rifle, the deer rifle, and the shotgun and hunt through late fall, early winter, into the spring, and then go back to growing in the spring. Well, in suburbia, you don't have those couple acres. So it's more important that you continue to grow things all the way into and maybe through the winter. To me, that makes the, the greenhouse a must, and if not a greenhouse, at least some cold frames. Uh, those are such season extenders. And in cold parts of the, the year, even things that will grow outside, they grow so much better when they're afforded protection and, and, and elevated CO2 levels of a greenhouse. Lettuce and spinach are perfect examples. I have a couple videos on YouTube you can check out. I took two patches of lettuce. I put a, a fish tank over one, and I put nothing over the other. They were in the same bed, in the same ground, fertilized the same way, exposed to the same light, watered at the same intervals, and the ones inside the fishbowl grew three times the size of the ones outside because of the greenhouse effect. So greenhouse of some sort, whether they're mini greenhouses, covered beds, cold frames, what have you, to me they're a must in suburbia as season extenders and for starting your seedlings. Eventually, I, I, I just did a show you know, uh, earlier this week with a young guy asked me about first-year gardening. I said, go buy your plants, right? Go buy your well-started plants for your first season. But, you know, when in one or two seasons you get the kind of formula down, you're going to want to start, start a lot of your own plants. You can only go so far with grow lights inside. Basically, you want to germinate your seeds inside, and then as soon as it's safe for whatever you've germinated, you want to get them into a greenhouse or a cold frame. They'll do so much better with natural sunlight than any grow light situation you could ever come up with. Um, so that's a big thing. Uh, the next thing you can do is you can improve your irrigation because every house has something in common. I guarantee you, no matter who you are, no matter where you live, your house has something my house has, a roof. And a roof is a hard surface and one of the greatest rainwater collection systems in the world. So whether you're channeling it into rain barrels or you're channeling it straight into the ground, you know, make sure that your water's not just running away. You know, either you swaling, again, which I'm going to talk about toward the end of today's show, or a rain garden or a great big uh, bed of very loose, compacted soil you're channeling your water into, uh, or a combination of both. Maybe you do rain barrels and the overflow goes in to a swale system or to uh, a raised bed system or what have you. But use all that water. One inch of rain on the average suburban roof is enough water to take care of your entire crop probably for a month or more. The problem is that we don't get enough rain. It's that when we do get rain, it runs off the property, into the storm drain, and out to the creek. You know, and it's lost. 
Instead of absorbed by the land, we want to rehydrate the soil. So make sure you're utilizing roof runoff if you want to do good suburban homesteading. Understand maximizing microclimates and utilizing them and understanding the limitations and the advantages they give you. The shaded part of your, lo your lawn is a microclimate. It's good for growing funguses like you know, shiitake, mataki, um, rishi, all these different great mushrooms we can grow on logs. It's good to shelter our rabbits in the hot part of the summer. But there's other microclimates. We might have a brick wall on the side of our house. And maybe we have one side of our house facing where it's always hit by the sun almost year-round. Or at least in the wintertime year-round. Or not year-round, but you know, throughout your winter months, low profile, that wall just gets beaten with the sun every single day. That's a microclimate. It's warmer, that soil is warmer than any other spot in your backyard. So if you have something that loves heat, that's hard to overwinter in your area, but you want to push the extreme, like a fig tree, that's the perfect place for it. And we can rock it in. And there's, you know, maybe you're at the edge of where you can grow citrus. But if you have that spot, right, if you have that spot with that wall just getting hit with that heat, and you plant that citrus tree right there, you plan the angle to come off that wall where the most heat is going to come off, and you rock in the roots to help retain warmth to those the root system, and then you on the, the coldest nights of the year, you, you cover that citrus tree, all of a sudden where none of your neighbors can grow citrus, you're growing a citrus. And this stuff works, but you have to think. The problem with Americans as a whole is we don't think anymore. Someone, the book says we can do it, then we can do it. It doesn't work, it's not our fault, we don't know why we failed. The book says we can't do it, we can't do it, there's nothing we can do. We have to use the book as a guide, not as a Bible, right? All these books on permaculture and gardening and stuff, they're not Bible. Even the Vegetable Gardener's Bible isn't a Bible. It's not chapter and verse, it's not the undisputed word, Okay? It's a guideline. It's the results that other people have experienced. And we can use those results and say, our results will probably be somewhat consistent with these. But where they start to fall apart, what is the deficiency and how do we compensate for it? This is where all the permaculture principles come into. We'll be talking about a few of those here in just a minute. Then the next thing is you got to use climbers in vertical spaces. Your fences should literally be covered with food. Especially any fence that's hit with a lot of sunlight. Absolutely smothered in food. If you're worried about the fence, you know, the stuff growing too directly on the fence, then you stand a trellis off the fence. But any, I mean, for annuals like beans and peas, you got all this great, you know, all you have to do is basically take cardboard one foot wide and lay it down along your fence. Right on top of the grass. Maybe two layers if you got really aggressive grass. Then on top of that cardboard layer, a great big layer of mulch down. Let that sit. For a while. And then go plant into that. You plant anything you want in there. You know, big layer of compost, big layer of mulch. And right on top and let that grass die. And that will become some of the most fertile ground in your, in, anywhere. Really easy to set up automated irrigation for. You just follow the fence. And, you know, so easy to pick. It grows up. And again, you can do things that are perennials like vines, like um, uh, grapes and muscadines, kiwis, hops. And you can do annuals like beans and peas and things like that. You can do trees and bushes that you espalar uh, so that they grow in a one-dimensional shape. But your, your your fence lines are the least utilized and some of the most valuable spaces available. And if you think about it this way, run a calculation on one fence line that gets sunlight. 
Just whatever, you know, most people have one, if you look at your backyard, you probably have three main fence lines. Right? You got your, cause one's your house. So leave that out. You've got, you know, if you're looking out your back door, you've got your left, your back, and your right fence line. One of those is going to get the most amount of sunlight. Go look at that right now. And it's, if it's a, if it's a wooden privacy fence like in most of suburbia, it's, it's six feet tall. And each section's eight feet long. That's 48 square feet. Count the sections. If you have 10 sections of fence, an 80-foot fence line like that, well, what is that? 480 square feet of growing space. And you're only utilizing 80 square feet to get 480, as long as you're growing vertical climbers. These are things to think about. Then the next thing is to start thinking about taking big techniques and downsizing them for home use. There's one I'm going to drop on here that I've, I've discovered about two weeks ago. I've been waiting to really tell you about this one. You guys are going to love this one. The first one, though, is swaling. Every piece of ground has slope. There's almost no such thing as dead level ground. Looks level in a lot of places. You're in Indiana or something, you're going, I got flat everywhere, Jack. I don't know what you're talking about. But if you go out any piece of ground and you take a nice long level, you know, long carpenter's level, and you just start turning it in different angles, sooner or later you'll find some slope to that land. And you can build, you know, kind of a contraption, either a, a, a swing level or a, uh, a water level. And the water level is basically a two yardsticks and a big piece of, uh, like, three-quarter inch clear hosing. You fill that with colored water. You attach the hosing to each yardstick and maybe, maybe about six feet of, of hose between your two yardsticks. And then you can just put each one in a space and you find a level line with that. Real simple to do. Once you do that, you can mark off a perfectly level line against the slope. And you cut a little ditch into there. You take all of the dirt out of the ditch and you put it on the downhill side of the, of the ditch. That's a swale. And that will hydrate every time you have rain. It will run into that ditch. It will slow it down, dead stop, seep it slowly into the ground. And that pile that you've made on the downside that's loosely compacted will suck moisture into it. And you can grow like crazy there. And you think, well, this is a big, large-scale project. I'll put a link to a forum thread where uh, Hair of Carnage from our moderator staff did this on the side of his suburban lawn. And it's not a great big swale like you think about in a, in a major food forest system, like you might have seen Jeff Lott or Bill Mollison talking about. It's a little bitty ditch. It's about a foot wide and a foot deep. And it looks like a big pile of dirt and a hole in the ground when you make it. When you fill the ditch in with organic matter, compost and, and loose mulch, and you cover the, the little mound of soil with compost, and then you plant bushes and trees and vines in there, and a year later, you can't even really tell that it's a swale anymore. It all grows in. doesn't look like a ditch anymore, but it's still there. If you walk in it, you'll notice it, but when you look at it, it looks pretty. But what happens is 100% of the water that was just washing away goes into the soil. And you can grow things there with little to no irrigation whatsoever. Speaking of little note to no irrigation, some of you are going to have a problem with this one. The more you know about conventional gardening, the more you're not going to want to accept it at first. But I'm telling you, it works. I've seen too much research on it working already. It's called hugel culture. And what you do with hugel culture is you dig that great big ditch, okay? And then you, know, you, don't build a, you dig a fairly deep, substantial ditch with this. You take all the dirt out of it. And then into that ditch, you put rotting logs, Big, giant rotting logs. Just throw them in there. Uh, maybe a couple feet uh, of depth of, of logs. Maybe even more. And then you put about one to two feet of soil on top of that. Maybe even higher. And you plant in there. 
And the conventional gardener is going to go, wood, oh no, not wood. Wood is a nitrogen thief. It will take up tons of nitrogen out of your soil and make your soil nitrogen deficient. In the first year, yes. But remember, you've got maybe 18, 24 inches of soil cover. Even a foot. It's down there quite a bit where that, uh, where that wood is. So it's taking nitrogen more from the subsoil. We can also fertilize. We can use blood and bone and compost and things like that to put additional nitrogen into the soil during this time frame. Eventually, uh, that wood, as it goes through its rotting process, will stop taking so much nitrogen up. It'll only take it up so it can rot. And it'll slowly release some, not a lot, but some over time. But do you know what it's going to act like? Giant sponge. And once you get a hugelkultur bed established, even in dry climates, you can often grow annual vegetables that seem like they require tons of watering, like tomatoes or squash, straight through a summer and never water even one time. Uh, Sepp Holzer, who I've posted some videos about before, the guy that's an Austrian, and he, he, he farms with terraces way up in the mountains, grows citrus fruits at like, you know, over a mile of elevation in the air in, in, a, in a climate known as the Little Alps. And he's able to do these things. Uh, he's one of the pioneers of this technique. Again, culture. Let me spell that one for you because a lot of you are trying to look it up right now and going, how the hell do you spell this? H-U-G-E-L-K-U-L-T-U-R. culture. And I picked this up at permies.com in their forum over there and some of their videos about it. I'll post some links to those videos today for you guys as well. But I am, I've never done this, but I'm going to work with it. A lot of you guys have given me hell about my wood chips on the top of my surface. And I've said the same types of things about wood chips um, and, and how well they really work. And they only take that nitrogen up for a short period of time. This, even I would have said, would be a nitrogen deficit by doing this until I saw the results. So be open-minded with it. But the key is that we can take a whole bunch of wood chips or something like that. We can build little mini beds, these little mini hugelkultur beds, anywhere we want to in our backyard. They don't have to be massive you know, things. They can be a couple feet long, a couple feet deep. And little mounds all over growing all of our edible landscapings, improving The, the carbon content of our soil and improving the moisture retention of our soil. And it, it, I'm really starting to wonder how I can put this together with, with swelling. And these two things working together. Holzer does it with terracing more than swales. He does flat level terraces on these mountains and they have the same type of effect the swale does. They stop the erosion. They slow down the water and let the water slowly run off. Uh, without quite as steep a slope, though, it seems to me that we could do a lot by blending these two things together. And uh, this has a very long-term effect. So maybe you get a little less out of it your first year, but you're looking at 10, 15 years of passive irrigation in return for sacrificing some nitrogen from year one or year two. And we can easily replace the nitrogen. I mean, it's so simple to come in once that's all put together and lay down a nice good pile of blood and bone compost, nice organic compost there. So that's what I want you guys to check out and learn more about. We'll learn more about that one together over the coming year. The next one is food forest. I mean, a food forest would seem like the last thing that you could do in a suburban backyard. Let me give you an example of one, though. Let's say instead of doing the big canopy trees, we start out with our, with our, our semi-dwarfs. We take out on the, we have a fairly decent sized backyard with a nice sunny back fence. We go way back to the, you know, furthest point so the sun is coming from the front side. And we plant maybe two nice semi dwarf apples. And it, you know, kind of staggered in, in, to one side or the other of the next two, we go in and we plant some dwarf tree, uh, peach trees. 
and it, and it kind of intermingled and coming forward from those dwarf peach trees, we go in there with some larger shrubs like gooseberry uh, and currant. And then we come down from there into some, and we do some vines and climbers that, that climb up in there, maybe some grapes or things like that that we allow to, to, to trail up some of our trees. We have a mini food forest. We come down into an herbaceous layer. We can literally plant a little mini food forest. The hell with a mini orchard. Go in layers. The, the, the stuff in the back that, that's going to get the most sunlight is the tallest. And as you're working toward the sun forward, you keep coming down to smaller and smaller trees. I can't grow two giant trees, two even large trees, with one you know, all the way to the rear of the sun and one directly in front of it. The one in front will shade out the one in the rear. But if I go and I establish my, my back, you know, my back layer first, and I plant smaller dwarf trees in front of that, I get this kind of stair step effect, and everybody gets enough. That's food forestry. And of course, the big permacultures in the tropics, you know, they do acres and acres and acres of this stuff. They plant thousands of trees. They get incredible yields. You know, but you could go, again, semi-dwarf, and then maybe, um, uh, you know, another semi-dwarf that doesn't get quite as big, like a semi-dwarf peach, is considerably smaller than a semi-dwarf apple, and then maybe in front of that a hedge like a filbert. You know, you can put anything you want into these, these systems. And that could all be coming off a swale. So you just have to think. And you have to realize that anything you can do in a large space, you can scale down to a small place. And the last one is ponds I want to talk to you about. Um, I think everybody's kind of hung up that wants a water garden or a pond on having a great big koi pond and lots of fish swimming around in it and this fountain and all this stuff. So now I need electricity. You can put in small ponds, 50, 60-gallon ponds, easily with no filtration whatsoever. You're just not going to have any big fish swimming around in there. You can even throw in some little minnows and mosquito fish and stuff like that. And as long as you get enough shade, they'll be all right. You put in some oxygenating plants. But these are tremendous things that boost your ecosystem and your output. First of all, you can actually grow things like Chinese water chestnut and taro root and things like that in your little ponds. And those are a yield you can eat. Duck potato would be another thing. Duck potato, maybe not so much for you, but what about your ducks if you have ducks? And duck potato is actually edible. I mean, there's a lot of things uh, that we can grow in little ponds that are human yields. Mini cattails. There's, you know, there's cattails that don't get huge. That we can use all of the good things we use cattails for. That we can grow these little still ponds. We can have four or five of these easily in a backyard. We want to make sure we have a good amount of plant life in there. We want to have a good way to drain them and, and do to sometimes do some replacements of the water that are in them. And when we drain them, we can actually use that for irrigation. It's high in nutrient. And, and, and you know, pond construction, again, probably another complete show. But there's so much we can do. If, you know, if we think a pond and we plant a tree like a fig tree on, on the, on, you know, so that we've got it. So it's the, the pond is facing south. The fig tree is now behind the pond facing south and it's got that big, you know, pile of rocks and boulders. Now in the winter, the sun's lower, it comes down, hits the water or the ice, even if the pond's frozen over and it acts like a mirror. It reflects it up into the root system, into the rocks around that fig tree or that citrus tree or what have you. And the pond actually helps create more warmth in the winter for the tree or any kind of tender plant that we're trying to get through a winter by using reflection. In the summer, it adds additional humidity. It brings in additional predators. And all of a sudden, it seems like I've got this yard that's only a tenth of an acre and there's not much I can do with. And really what I end up doing is going, man, there's so many things I could do with it. Which ones are best for me? 
And, and that's why I gave you a wide variety today. I didn't want to say, this is what you should do. I wanted to tell you all kinds of things that you could do. Get your mind, stir it up, and start to realize homesteading is more than a garden or an apple tree. It's a continuous system that's designed to compensate for some of the dependency that we have so that we can have more independency. And the more of this we do, and the more we get our neighbors to do it, and the more barter we can do, the more things we open up. Because we all have a neighbor that has this huge open space. You're like, man, I'd love to use that. Well, maybe he would like to use it too. He just doesn't know how. And if you teach him how, you can barter with him then. Lots of things that we can do. Maybe you have a neighbor. Let's say you have a neighbor that doesn't really want to mess with any of this. But he wouldn't mind having, you know, a, a nice nut tree. Well, buy it for him. Plant it. So I'll plant it close to the fence. When it falls on, side, on my side, is mine. And what's is on yours is yours. And if you can't use it all, I'll come get it. You know, if you got a neighbor that has a big yard, a huge yard, you got a little yard up against it, and there's nothing planted on his back fence, and you have chickens, ask him if you can have him plant a mulberry tree on his side. All the mulberries that fall on your side, the chickens will eat. He says, what about the mulberries that fall on my If you let my, let my chickens in your yard for a couple days uh, in the harvest season at a time, they'll eat your side too. I mean... Then a mulberry it better be far from the house, right? You know, it really, because they're unless you do a white mulberry, because the the red stuff dyes everything, and that may not be the best thing for an unknowing neighbor to plant. I'm just giving you some ideas here. Expand if you want to really homestead in a suburban environment, you need to convert some members of your uh, your community into homesteaders too. And the more you can barter and work with, and remember we had Marjorie on, and she talked about doing things like, you know, uh, using a, 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 a place like, a, you know, a, ch a church or a, a community center or whatever, and just advertising on Craigslist, hey, we're going to show a film on backyard sustainability or what have you, and bring people together to watch these things. You'll find people that you've lived in your neighborhood your whole life, you've never talked to them, maybe you've seen them wave to them once in a while, live two streets over, that are totally into this, but they just don't know what to do. And these are ways to find each other. The reality is this. If I have my choice, and I do, I would get out of the city. But there's a lot going for it here, too. And there are places, I think, if we ever have a massive breakdown that you're going to have to get out of. But there's a lot of places where things can be pretty well held together. Hopefully you've chosen one of those. And the more you can do to be self-sufficient, the more you can do to become part of your community and helping your community become self-sufficient, the better you and your community can weather the storms together. And the big thing, and we had David Crawford on last week talking about this, the big thing when there's catastrophe is hope. As long as there's hope, people hold it together. A big part of creating hope today is to start becoming more independent. Because then that way we're not just waiting for someone to come fix it for us. The big thing I hope you take away from today, though, is no matter where you are, homesteading can be part of your life. It is not the only thing you need to be doing to prepare. You need to have a good store up of food. You do need to have a way of defending your home. And to me, that's a gun and ammunition. And I know some of the people that are more of the agrarian sect don't really like that idea. But, hey, man, it, there's a reason we have a Second Amendment. Because our founders knew that's what was really necessary, to be truly able to defend your own life and the life of your community and your families. Uh, you know, you have to have the regular uh, bug out plan and, and a disaster preparedness kit and all that other stuff it has to be part of your long term planning. But so much could be done and so much misery avoided if we all could produce just a little bit, a little bit of what we need. I go back to my statement from a long time ago. If we could just take one in ten or ten percent of all trees in North America growing in suburbia, you know, fruitless mulberries, fruitless, uh, you know, pears. Uh, oaks, all these trees that, that don't produce anything that people eat, and replace one in ten 
with a fruit or a nut tree that would actually be used, a walnut, a pecan, a pear, an apple, just 10%. We could literally produce over a hundred thousand tons of food a year with no additional inputs, puts, no additional fertilizer, no anything. Because those trees are already growing, they're just non-productive trees. So think about that, think about what you can do, get your mind going, and make a commitment that in 2011, you're going to take at least some steps to turn your home into a homestead. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares.